Thank you very much. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, please pass those to the aisle and we will collect them and pray for you this week. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis 1. That sounds like a good place to go. And I fully anticipate this message to be challenging uh, to many. I pray that that would always be true in our preaching and teaching of God's word. Many of us would have never imagined that we would be embroiled in a dispute over the definition of a man or a woman. But that's exactly where we are as a culture. This confusion, this delusion has brought a full frontal assault to God's creative design. And whenever that happens, it brings with it a wave of disaster. I think we see that. Does the Bible really teach a distinction between manhood and womanhood? Between maleness and femaleness? That would seem self-evident, wouldn't it? That there's a difference between a man and a woman? Yet over the last 40 years, the fruit of the sexual revolution has brought an insistence that no distinction exists between a man and a woman. And this unisexism has pushed for an intentional blending of the sexes, and it has created quite a disturbance. Same personal space, bathrooms and locker rooms, the LGBTQ plus biological males competing in in women's sports, Uh, not just in the culture at large, but the church has been affected by this movement as well where the culture seems to be clamoring for a certain um, path forward, uh, the church often follows the world instead of being distinct from it. And we've seen a drift toward removing all role distinctions between men and women and ushering women into the pastorate and so forth. So are there differing roles in the body of Christ? I mean, you just read a moment ago in Galatians 3 that there's no, uh, no Jew, no Gentile, there's no male, no female. We're all one in Jesus Christ. Why not usher women into uh, the pastorate and into the pulpit? That is a conversation we're going to be having in our own denomination in just a couple of weeks. Maybe you've seen that in the news which is one of the motivations for being able to address it this morning. So is this question really important? I mean, come on, Pastor. We want our church to be about Jesus Christ. We want people to know that we stand on the gospel. And for uh, men and women to hear that good news, why are you seemingly taking this sidebar and giving uh, time in the pulpit on this? Well, for a, a number of reasons. Um... It's not a distraction. Messages that address specific issues that undercut scripture, undercut the word of God, have an important place in the life of the church. Our faith is to be confessed before the world based upon convictions found in the scripture. We're to be confessional. We want the world to know what what we believe, not because we think uh, our ideas are paramount to others, but we want the world to know what we believe because what we believe we want to be founded and rooted in the Word of God. I can't think of anything more foundational than God's creative design for men and women in the life of, of, of marriage, in the family, and in the life of the church. Martin Luther once said, I would rather the heavens fall than one truth of God be lost. 
Think about that for a moment. We can be of the mindset, well, that's not really important. That's not really important. That's not really important. That issue is not really important. And next thing you know, you give the farm away. And taking middle ground and 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 you have nothing left. Every truth of God has been costly through the history of this world. Every truth of God. It's inspiring to look at the history of the Bible, particularly in the English-speaking world, of how it cost the blood of men and women for the Word of God. When you look at the issues of doctrine that are foundational to the Christian faith, they, they've been costly to contend earnestly for them. And so, yes, <laughs> I think it is vitally important that we look at an issue like this and to search the scriptures together and to have a foundation for us to stand upon. If the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, then we must be prepared to answer this question of our sons and daughters. We must be prepared to answer this question to the little boys and little girls growing up in this church. What does it mean to be a man and not a woman? And what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? Not only is the culture reeling with confusion and unsustainable demands, the church is not providing the salt and light we should be giving on the subject. And often we find even within the ranks of those professing Jesus Christ, detractors and persecutors of those seeking to stand on biblical truth rather than the cultural winds that blow. Right now, our own denomination is confronted with what looks to be quite a debate in two weeks in New Orleans led by Rick Warren and others ignoring the role distinctions by ordaining women pastors in their congregations. So serious theological truths are at stake here. How one views the scripture, is it really authoritative to all of life and the church? Or should we go and mold and blend in with the culture and uh, how we, we gather together as God's people? In the early 1970s, Helen Reddy's, Helen Reddy accepted the Grammy Award for her song, I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar, and the, which was the battle anthem for the feminist movement. And she said upon receiving her reward, I I'd like to thank God because she made everything possible. Now, we live in a time where pronouns are emphasized. As God's gone on record, record in his word that he's to be referred to as a he and a him. That's how he's revealed himself to us. Not that he's male, but that's how he's referred himself to us in the word of God, that when we reference him, we reference him in that way. The health of the church is at stake. The well-being of the family is at stake. Titus explains in the book of Titus chapter two that this issue is really at the heart of whether the word of God will be blasphemed or not. How we relate to one another in family life how we relate to one another in God's creative design. I've mentioned to you on a number of occasions, really a landmark work by John Piper and Wayne Grudem entitled Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a Response to Evangelical Feminism. And Piper writes, when I was a boy growing up in Greenville, South Carolina, my father was away from home about two thirds of every year. He was an evangelist on the road. And while he preached across the country, he, we prayed, my mother and my older sister and I. What I learned in those days was that my mother was omnicompetent. 
She handled the finances. She ran a, a little laundry business on the side. She taught me how to cut the grass and splice electric cord and pull Bermuda grass by the roots and paint the eaves and shine the dining room table with a chamois and drive a car and keep french fries from getting soggy in the cooking oil and help me believe that algebra 2 is possible. God bless her for that. But it never occurred to me to think of my mother and my father in the same category. Both were strong, both were bright, both were kind, both would kiss me and both would spank me. Both were good with words, both prayed with fervor and loved the Bible. But unmistakably, my father was a man and my mother was a woman. They knew it and I knew it. My burden, and it is a burden, is that we as a congregation would be rooted and grounded in God's word on this issue and that in obedience we would follow him not only in this body but in our families and in our lives. You don't have to look far in Western culture uh, to see that it's decaying. And we're not, we're not a chicken little people. The world is falling apart. That's not, that, that's not the perspective I'm coming from. I mean, I mean, an honest assessment. Everybody's got their hands in the air. What is going on? What is happening? It's decaying. The past few decades have witnessed nothing less than a major shift with regard to marriage and family and the biblical principles held firmly in previous generations, and this isn't, again, longing for the good old days, they had problems then too. But at least there was a core witness of biblical truth on what a man was, what a woman was, what a family was, and that's good for everybody. We are witnessing firsthand the refrain from the book of Judges that men did what was right in their own eyes with divorce with no sexual ethic at all, um, with cohabitation, living together before marriage, and the numbers are in and they're not good. And often young people say, well, we'll just live together, and, and even older people do that. We're old, so we can do that. You know, I, I've had that conversation in my ministry. You may be in your 60s, but what would we do with a young couple who were doing what you're doing? We'd say you can't do that and profess the name of Christ. 66% of high school senior boys agreed or mostly agreed with the statement, it's usually a good idea for a couple to live together before getting married in order to find out whether they really get along. And that effort to explore things, to check things out first, doesn't prove to to alleviate the concerns or the explosive tendencies of those relationships. Kirby Anderson aptly challenges this idea. The problem with such questions is they dehumanize the other person. If I decide not to buy another car or, or shoes, the car does not feel rejected. When you test drive your car, you don't, you don't put your personal luggage in the trunk. And rejecting a car model doesn't bring emotional baggage into the next test driving experience. The car doesn't need counseling so that it can trust the next car driver. Test driving a car is only positive if you're the driver. It is hard to minimize the damage of such thinking. Homosexuality, the transgender movement, deprives children and households run 
by same-sex partners of primary role models of both sexes, which study after study, not to mention the affirmation of God's word, declare as essential. So let's break down our, our time together in two major points. You can look at your insert. Hopefully that will be helpful. How are we to understand the differences between male and female? How would you answer that question? And the role set forth in scripture. Let's just take a brief scriptural survey. We'll begin in Genesis. I had you open to the first chapter. We've been here many times on many occasions to address many subjects. And here again, in chapter 1, verse 26, the Lord said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and creation. And God created, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the book of Genesis, is the, which was originally addressed to Israel in the wilderness generation, these early chapters are critical to understanding the creator's design for marriage in every age. Jesus and the Apostle Paul taught from the foundation of Genesis. Jesus never said, look, you can't really trust Genesis, it's shaky. You never read Paul saying, I, I, you know, Adam and Eve, that's, that's, a, that's a myth, that's a fictitious tale, and we need to chart a new course for a better foundation for humanity. On the contrary, they refer back to Genesis. And I'll show you Paul's basis for his argument uh, with regard to ministry in the church in just a moment. Marriage is rooted in God's creative act of making humanity in his image as male and female. And they complement one another. They must come together in order for the propagation of the, the human race. Adam and Eve were charged with exercising representative rule over the earth. God said, be fruitful and multiply, bring it under dominion. So in a sense, we are like God in that way that no other part of his creation resembles. We are made in his image. God rules over the universe, so humanity is given charge of the entire earth to rule it for God's glory. We are stewards, God is the owner. So God established roles for marriage. We turn the page to Genesis 2. Genesis 1 notes the creation of man as male and female in God's image. Genesis 2, uh, the detail on the exact order. God created Adam first, then Eve. This becomes the basis of Paul's argument for male headship and leadership in marriage and in the church. Paul teaches that Genesis is historical. At the beginning of human history, God made the first man, gave life to him, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. God gave moral commands of all the trees you may eat, but the tree, this tree you shall not eat. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. And Eve was created. The first negative in creation was, it's not good for man to be alone. So Eve was created. They were brought together in a complementary way to complement one another, differing roles within God's creative design. The text says that she was a suitable helper, a helper fit for him, verse 18 of chapter two. God only made one suitable helper for Adam, and she was female. God observed Adam's aloneness and created her to come alongside, and they would form a bond like no other. 
It is good for a man to leave father and mother, to cleave to his wife, the two becoming one. They were both naked and not ashamed. She came alongside of Adam for the task. And that, that is an, a, a, a wonderful thought for marriage. Husbands and wives coming together in a joint purpose to obey God's command on your life. So while assigned to the man as his helper and thus placed under his overall charge, the woman is his partner in, 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 in ruling the earth for God's glory. So when we look at what is a man, what is a woman, what is manhood, what is womanhood, I go back to Piper and Grudem's definition on this. At the heart of mature manhood is a sense of kind, caring, and compassionate responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways that are appropriate to man's differing relationships with her. Mature manhood expresses itself by not demanding to be served, but to serve, just like Jesus. And this is one of the ways that the fall has affected uh, 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 men in this way. You have the fall, meaning the fall into sin and dealing with a sin nature. On one side, you have the aggressive bully who's abusive, and we would say right up front, that is non-representative of, 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 of God's call for manhood. That is not biblical manhood. The fact that you can punch a hole in the sheetrock, nobody's going to applaud that here. We will confront you. Any man that would hit a woman is out of order. Not only is that a crime and abusive, it's a dishonor to Jesus Christ, and you must be confronted. So the fall of sin can produce the bully, the thug, the bad boy. And on the other side, what? The passive responsibility shirking masculinity that I just can't stand. And both miss the mark. God has not called men to be thugs. And God has not called men to be checked out. But rather, the, the manhood we're talking about is servant leadership, caring, compassionate leadership. And it's expressed in ways that are clear. If men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, how did he love the church? He gave himself for her. And all that that communicates. Womanhood, femininity, is at the heart of mature femininity, is the freeing disposition to affirm, to receive, and to nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. So mature womanhood brings nurturing strengths and insights that make men stronger and wiser. That was God's design. She will be a compliment to you, Adam. She will help you fulfill uh, the purpose I have for you together. Affirming, receiving, nurturing. Let me go back to Piper again. Uh, referring to his father and mother. When my father came home off the road, being an evangelist, uh, he was clearly the head of the house. 
He led in prayer at the table. He called the family together for devotions. He got us to Sunday school and worship. And men should be leading the way in that. And I often say to women as they're considering marriage, are you having to motivate him to serve the Lord? Are you having to kickstart him to get going in his spiritual walk? That should not be. Back to Piper. My dad drove the car. He guided the family to where we would sit. He made decisions to go to Howard Howard Johnson's for lunch. (laughs) He led us to the table. He called for the waitress. He paid the check. He was the one we knew we would reckon with if we broke a family rule or were disrespectful to, to mother. These were the happiest times for mother. Oh, how she rejoiced to have daddy home. She loved his leadership. Later I learned that the Bible calls this submission. Together in God's design, marriage would bring procreation. It would bring exercise of dominion. It would bring an identity as God's um, image bearers. The fall would disrupt that. And so, you know, equal in kind, Adam and Eve, equal in kind, distinct in calling. Which leads us to um, really the point of the debate in the church anyway. And that's between egalitarianism and complementarianism. And this is the tension in the church right now. What's egalitarianism? What are these 50 cent words and how does that matter? Well, egalitarianism is that all people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities. We certainly wouldn't argue that with regard to cultural jobs and how we relate in the commerce of this world, but with regard to marriage and with regard to um, uh, roles in the church, we see that we are equal in value, equal in worth in the sight of God, but with distinct roles with distinct roles. The complementarian position in the context of roles between men and women in marriage and in the church speaks to equality and beneficial differences between men and women. And we would do well to try to understand what that is. And you know, when this is right, it's it's never an issue. When this is right in a body, it's never an issue. When it's right in a marriage, it's not an issue. Oh yeah, there will be struggles in marriage that need to be worked out regularly. But I'm talking about husband and wife embracing this, a church embracing this with regard to its leadership. The Bible reveals the nature of masculinity and femininity by describing diverse responsibilities for men and women while rooting these differences in creation, not culture. So these, we're not talking about, well, that's cultural. That was way back then. All the arguments you see, whether it be Jesus or Paul, link the argument back to creation. And so there should be scriptural guidance. And so when we're talking about marriage, I I referenced Colossians 3 earlier in our scripture reading. Ephesians says in verse 22, chapter 5, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Uh, That's offensive language in our culture, isn't it? What? What? That's servitude. Well, I think if you've been here long enough, you know that's not what it means at all. And then it goes on to say, 
in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a sacrificial giving love. Scriptural guidance for the living out of differing roles. We live in a day where marriage patterns do not portray the relationship between Christ and his church. That parenting practices do not train boys to be masculine or girls to be feminine. Patterns of unbiblical female leadership in the, in the family and the church that reflect and promote the confusion over the true meaning of what manhood and womanhood is. And even with manhood and womanhood, we understand that there are differences and preferences and gifts within that, but never, nevertheless, the distinctness of it. Let's transition now, secondly, to what about roles in the body of Christ? Um, I, I've mentioned twice now a third time that our denomination is facing a big discussion in a few weeks with regard to role of women in the pastorate led by Rick Warren and others. Rick Warren pastored Saddleback Church in California for many years and he's been disfellowshipped from the Southern Baptist Convention for violating our statement of faith by ordaining three women in his church uh, a couple of years ago. And our Baptist faith and message, our statement of faith uh, is reads this way, it's scriptural officers, are speaking to the church, um, it's scriptural officers, are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. And so Warren has argued this, and it sounds compelling on one point. He says um, in a podcast, these are direct quotes, both men and women are to be, are to fulfill the great commission Women are to go, women are to make disciples, baptize, teach, not just men. We would agree with that. Women are to witness anywhere, anytime. They're to proclaim the word of God freely. Warren goes on to say, we know women were in the upper room, were filled with the Holy Spirit and and preached at Pentecost. I would question the last part, but certainly they were in the upper room. Certainly they were filled with the Holy Spirit. He went on to say that the very first sermon, the message of the gospel of good news of the resurrection, Jesus chose a woman to deliver it to a man. And indeed, Mary was there at the tomb and she went back and told the 12. But is that a, is that a case for uh, establishing this in the church? That is not a case for doing that. That's an observation which should bolster our understanding that we have a shared duty to the Great Commission. And that everyone is gifted, male or female, Jew or Gentile, for the spread of the Great Commission. But to usher a woman into the pulpit in violation of the text we're about to look at is to be seen as out of order. So how do we reconcile Galatians 3.28, which says there's, there, there's no difference between male or, 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 uh, male or female, Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond or free. We're all one in Christ. What will we say to that? Well, amen, that is exactly true. But does that mean that we don't have a difference in our role in in marriage and in in the church? Uh, Obviously not, because 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15, which was in our reading, and I'd have you to turn there now. Here we have an important teaching that is often just overlooked everywhere. But we don't overlook it here, and we give it our best to try to interpret it correctly. Men and women are of equal value and importance in God's kingdom. That's how we would 
answer the question, how do we distinguish between Galatians 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 2? And the answer is simply that men and women are of equal value and importance in God's kingdom purposes, and they have differing complementarian qualities given for God's glory and a representation of Jesus and his relationship with the church. So what's the point in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 8 through 15? Well, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are called pastoral letters. And they're written from Paul to Timothy and Titus for the purpose of establishing order in the church. It's not a free-for-all. God has given us specific instruction on the gathering of the church. In fact, if you wanted a, a key verse to 1 Timothy, it would be in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Where Paul says, I want to come to you, but in case I'm delayed, I'm writing these things to you so that you, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I'm writing these things so you will know how to structure life in the church. Which he goes on to say, is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So he's writing this to bring order to the gathering. And the first thing he mentions for the duly constituted gathering of the church is that men are to lead out in verse 8. I desire, a strong desire, then that in every place the men should pray, leading out in the corporate worship of the church, and they're to do so with integrity and in holiness, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then he uses the conjunction, verse 9, likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. What, let me just stop there and say, well, what's going on here? Well, let me break it down this way. He begins by talking of a woman's presence in the body of Christ and the gathering of the church Men are to lead, and he picks up with this thought in chapter 3, where he lists the character qualities of one who would serve as a pastor, and these three are the same, pastor, overseer, elder, all describing the same office, and then he mentions deacon. But with regard to the pastor, it's a reference to a male only. He continues or rather reverting back to chapter two, her presence, a woman's presence in the body of Christ, how she presents herself in the gathering. So this, wow, this sounds like a pretty specific dress code. What's he talking about here? Well, how she presents herself in the body, not for a fashion show, because you can imagine um, her showing up with, an elaborate hairdo, gold, pearls, and a costly attire where she becomes the center of attention in the gathering of the church. And is it, does she need to be the center of attention at the gathering of the church? No, this is very practical. He says that she's to present herself in modesty and self-control as one professing godliness, verse 10 says, with good works, not uh, coming in with an elaborate hairdo. And some of these things were very, very costly. In fact, he uses that word. And can you imagine her coming into the front and center of the sanctuary? She becomes the centerpiece of what everybody's talking about. I wonder what she's going to wear this week. Look at that hairdo. Did you see all those pearls? And on and on and on it goes. 
And what Paul is saying is that should not be the centerpiece when the church gathers. She's not a fashion statement. But rather presenting herself, that doesn't mean you, you wear a burlap sack either. But the idea is that she's presenting herself for the purpose of godliness. She's here to worship. What does that look like? <laughs> That's where the conflict comes in, isn't it? But she's not showcasing herself. She's wanting to honor the Lord and dresses accordingly. Her attitude in the gathering of the church, uh, verse 10, but with, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So her attitude is that she wants to serve Jesus Christ. And she's gathered in the, in the church for that purpose. Uh, thirdly, he, um, her witness in the body um, that she is um, pursuing a, a life that honors Christ and wants him to be glorified. Her function is critical to the well-being of the church. It says in verse 11 and 12, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, what is this speaking to? I would remind you the context is the gathering of the church. But women have teaching roles in the body. He goes on to say to other women and children, he says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet in the duly constituted gathering of the church. He says here, let the women learn. Look at that in the text. Let the women learn. I, why? Because they have a job to do. Often in the first century, women were put off, put out. Paul says, let them learn. They're an important part of the gathering of the body. So what does he base this argument on? Okay, so let me just mention this. What do you do with a paragraph like that? I, I'm entertaining the thought that someone may be irritated. I'm even talking about this this morning because it's so radical <laughs> to the way our world thinks. All right, on biblical grounds, on fellow believers in Jesus Christ, what do we do with that paragraph? Ignore it? No thanks. I think the choice is, we've gotta to come to terms with what God says here, not just here, but in Titus. And we bring these different um, verses together to try to understand and to have a conviction on, on how to represent the Lord rightly in our generation. What does Paul base his argument on in this paragraph? Maybe you're saying, oh, that was the first century culture, that's the way they thought about things, but we're, we've, we're advanced now, we're progressive now. We, we're way beyond that. That's so yesterday. What does he base his argument on? I would point you to verse 12. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Where does that take us? To the very beginning. Paul lived many years after the creation. He's rooting his argument not in first century culture. He's rooting his argument in God's creative design. That's the only way to understand this and to seek to obey it. 
Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived as she's engaging the serpent and brings about the temptation, and Adam uh, res- held responsible in, in, in the fall, but so is Eve, and that's, we see that in the New Testament. In Adam, we all die, and here we've, we see Eve taking the brunt of it here in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. Notice verse 15. Maybe you were wondering, what does that mean? Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Not, you know, this, this isn't saying that a woman has to have a baby in order to be saved. That's not what it's saying. He goes on to give a little more insight here. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So I think this is referring to the fact that babies only come from women. And that this stigma that Eve placed upon the human race in the fall is lifted a bit in the fact that it's only women that give birth to babies. And he clarifies that by saying giving birth isn't what brings redemption. Following the Lord Jesus Christ is what brings that about. The impact of women on the church of Jesus Christ is without question. So ladies, what I would want to say in light of wading through a passage like this and all the other things is that you are a co-laborer in the gospel of equal worth before the Lord Jesus Christ with differing roles in marriage and in the church. And when that is inverted and confused, the chaos continues. But there ought to be mutual love and respect in the Lord. So... Let me just ask the question. In light of this, should next, week, next month I'm going on a study leave, which is my, has been the custom. The elders have given me that in the summer in order to advance our ministry in ways that I couldn't do otherwise, globally and locally and in this body. So I've got some wonderful preachers coming. Should I work a woman in there to come and preach to us next month? I don't think so. Why? Because... I think she's inferior. No, not that. I just think it's out of order. Paul is writing this. He says, I'm writing this to you, Timothy, so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the pillar and support of the, of the truth. Let me, let me close, close with this. The alarm clock has sounded a long time ago. It's an urgent time. Um... And we find ourselves really in a, in a spiritual crisis everywhere we look. The profound moral, ethical, political, economic, and leadership dilemmas that confront us have brought about a deep spiritual vacuum. And this is where we close with the gospel. Why do we care about paragraphs like this in 1 Timothy 2? Why do we care about male and female and embracing what God has created us to do? It's because the gospel is at stake. The word of God is at stake. And what is the gospel? Well, it's a glorious, happy message sent from the courts above that God, the God who is, the God who created everything is a God who saves, a God who redeems. I stood by the gravesite of Gwen's father this week and was reminded of that wonderful statement in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This gospel offer is extended to you today that men and women everywhere are called to repent of their sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only redeemer there is. He's the only mediator between God and man. And he came from heaven to earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to pay for sin once and for all. And the call and the response to this good news is to turn to him and believe on him and to trust him. Would you bow with me in prayer as our praise team comes? And as we get ready to sing, may we be surrendered to him. Father, we thank you for your word which guides us. You've not left us in the dark on these issues. And I pray, Father, that as a church we would embrace them as uncomfortable as it is in mixed company in this world. We pray that we would stand upon the truth of your word and that there would be clarity in this body as we seek to obey your great commission together. Lead us in these closing moments. I pray for anyone here that you're dealing with, that, Father, the power of the gospel would come to them and the word of God would minister to them. And may all of us leave here with a resolve to live for you. Let's stand together as we sing.